Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm joined on the podcast today by Marjorie Hudson, author of the new novel, Indigo Field. Best-selling writer Sue Monk Kidd wrote about the novel. Indigo Field brims with multi-generational drama, earthy spirituality, and deeply imagined characters you are like unlikely to forget. In tightly compressed poetic language, Hudson weaves a mesmerizing story of loss, injustice, and revenge conspiring to darken the human heart and the redemptive and unexpected ways the light comes in. Marjorie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. If someone hasn't yet heard about your novel, Indigo Field, how would you describe the novel? Well, it's about a field. It's a novel about a field, and it's a place where things are not what they seem to be. It takes place in the rural South, um, and the field hides centuries of crimes and secrets under the seemingly benign surface. Uh, it's also about the possibility of connection across boundaries of race, class, and culture, and how uh, the past is never the past, especially in the South. So there are three families who live near the field, and even though they're living on the same land, they live in completely different worlds. So my job was to get them connected with each other and to get them in trouble with each other. Um, so there are three families. Uh, one is a retired colonel, has just moved to an upscale retirement village and hates his new life. He runs across the highway every day into this um, forest of pines to get away and spies on the fields and farms below. So he wishes he could convince his wife to move there with him. Uh, so that's the first character. Then there's a young farm widow, Jolene, who's trying to make a living selling goat cheese at the farmer's market. She's struggling to pay her bills, and she's also raising a Down syndrome son who's getting to be late in his teen years, and he's becoming a little hard for her to handle. And third, there's uh, the real true heart of the novel is an elderly Black woman, Miss Reba, and she is the one who has lived here her whole life. She knows all the secrets of the field, the Jim Crow crimes, the mysterious lives of Native people who lived there. And uh, she is in trouble right now because uh, her niece has been murdered and the white man who killed her has just gotten off with a light sentence. So she's sort of burning with resentment and isolating herself. So um, what gets the novel started is a disturbance in the field. Uh, next to the river, somebody finds the bones of a baby buried in a pot. The sheriff comes, archaeologists come and disturb the spirits in the field who rise up and begin to make themselves known to different characters in different ways. And uh, one of the spirits is Miss Reba's murdered niece, Danielle, who comes back as a little girl and begs her for the stories of the field. And finally, Miss Reba breaks down and starts to tell them 
Um, there is another moment uh, near the beginning where Miss Reba and the Colonel um, collide, and their worlds collide. They also collide physically. The Colonel is a runner, and he actually runs into her car, not looking where he's going. Um, and he damages her car badly, and she is seething with resentment about that, and she decides that here is one white man who won't get away with the damage he does. So the stories of all these three families circle and spiral around picking up more backstory, more challenges for each character, and uh, a crisis forces them all to connect in order to survive. Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing Indigo Field? Yes, I do. It was quite a moment. Um, about 30 years ago, I had just moved to my husband's family farm out in the country in North Carolina. I was a newlywed. And it was mostly small farms around us, open fields, pine forests. And you hardly saw your neighbors until you went into town. Or sometimes you would stop your truck in the middle of the road to talk. It was the kind of place where there was no danger of anybody else coming along. So uh, it was pretty isolated. And I was walking my dog down the road one day, and an older man came jogging toward me and dressed all in running shoes and shorts and uh, fit and trim. He looked maybe like a military man. He had a brush cut and a ball cap. And and it was strange. I had never seen a runner on my road. And it was so rural then, you just didn't see anyone much. So uh, running had not gone mainstream in my part of the South. And I realized, yes, I realized this man might be from the new retirement development across the highway where people had moved here from other places. So just a, a, a second thing happened, though. Uh, just as he passed, this man turned to look me in the eye, and he had such a look of devastation. It hit me like a blow. I, I did not know what to do. He kept going. I kept going. But it haunted me for days. What would make a person feel that way and how in the world could you keep running if you felt that way? So that um, that was what sparked my the idea of the character, the Colonel Randolph Jefferson Lee. Um, I had been writing short stories and had just published in Story Magazine, so um, I had won a few awards. I was feeling my oats, and um, I told a friend, I'm going to write a novel about this man. So that was the moment that that the colonel became a character. Now, it would have been a novel about a white man living in a retirement village if a whole lot of other things had not been going on in my life that inspired me to bring in this whole chorus of voices and tell a more complex story. Um, uh, a little background, I had been 
I was working as a freelancer and a copy editor. I was working for Algonquin Books and reading Southern literature for the first time. Um, my job was to read and, and copy edit novels. And uh, I had um, a sense about where I was living that it was mysterious and I wanted to learn more. So I began to read Southern literature like a madwoman. I just got deeply, I dug really deeply into it. And I realized that that kind of literature was the only way to capture the mystery and manners of where I lived. Um, so uh, there was some discovery going on for me in that area. Uh, I wanted to write something, I guess, write something back to it, you know, be part of the uh, writing of the South, uh, the people who, who address issues and, and Southern living in their work. Um, also, around this time, I had just read the famous journal of John Lawson, the English explorer of the Carolinas. He wrote his journal is called A New Voyage to the Carolinas, in which he documented 20 nations of indigenous people uh, around 1700 to 1709. And he especially detailed the Tuscarora people. So I got an assignment to write about that and went to the site of a historic Tuscarora village and became haunted by what was underground, clay pots, pipes, turtle shells, and bones. And so that was also simmering as I was getting started thinking about what would be part of this novel. And then finally, one day, um, I went to my daughter's middle school to talk about all I was learning about indigenous people in our region. And the teacher whispered to me as if it was a secret that the school was named for a black man, um, an extraordinary poet who had sold his poems to buy his freedom. And to tell you the truth, I didn't believe him. Nobody had ever told me this. There was only, you know, the last name was on the school sign, not a, not a whole name. Um, so I went around and spoke to people in my community, black elders in my church and white elders, and all of them had grown up here, and the black elders knew who the school was named for, and the white elders did not. So as a newcomer to the South, I began to understand that what black people know about history in their communities and what white people know are two different things. Um, so I went down a rabbit hole and began to study this, this um, extraordinary man, George Moses Horton, and became an activist. So being an activist and learning about Black history and teaching about Black history all over my state became part of the impetus uh, for the concept I was developing for the novel, centered on a newcomer, a retiree who's ignorant of the history around him, and the old-timer, an elderly Black woman who knows it all but isn't telling. So I wanted their lives to collide and come together with some kind of understanding, but first they had to get in trouble. What was your writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first stories and novel published? Yeah, I um, 
I was a nonfiction writer. I was a journalist in uh, an editor for uh, environmental publication. I was a uh, features editor of National Parks magazine and later freelanced for them and freelanced for the uh, local uh, wildlife, wildlife in North Carolina magazine. And um, so I, you know, I'm a freak for nature. And that was my background was nonfiction writing. So it was interesting and fun for me to go into the kind of research that journalists have to do to write um, about history. And it allowed me to work with some accuracy when I was going into this territory of, of fiction. But um, I wrote the story of, of the colonel just, um, and thinking it might be a chapter in, in my, a first chapter of the novel. And then I set it aside for a while. Um, I realized I had a lot to learn. I got about, oh, at some point I got about 450 pages in, and I didn't really know how to pull it all together or how to end it. So um, many, many side trips actually ended up building my understanding of what I was writing. Uh, at one point I went to an MFA program, um, and before I even finished the fiction program, I got an assignment to write about North Carolina history, the lost colony of Roanoke Island. Um, so I was writing fiction stories in one room of the house and my nonfiction research in the other. So that, that assignment I got so enthralled with, it became a book. It's called Searching for Virginia Dare. And it's a strange combination of travelogue history and memoir. Um, and in my research for that, I learned quite a lot more about Native American history in North Carolina. I met indigenous people, spoke to Lumbee scholars. The Lumbee are one of the largest tribes in, in North Carolina. And I spoke to archaeologists, went to digs, read oral histories. And so the big question about the lost colony is what became of them? That is, you know, what became of the English people who disappeared? But I was interested also in what became of the indigenous people that were living there and connecting with the settlers. So that all became a foundation of the research I could use in my novel. And um, meanwhile, I was giving these history talks about Black history, and I was being mentored by some older Black women in my community. Um, and the character, Miss Reba, uh, was developed as part of a novella that I wrote about Jolene and her backstory, The Dairy Farmer. And... Uh, Miss Reba developed, I think, as a result of wondering how the black women of a certain generation survived in my community, as as I wish I knew they had witnessed so many devastating crimes and losses. So Tuscarora history, archaeology, strong black women, the sense of a need for justice, and the awareness of a lot of injustice in in. Uh, many places in the South, and and an awareness that, you know, as Faulkner says, the past is never dead, it's not even past. So, um, I came back to the novel and 
did a tremendous amount of research to fill out backgrounds. Uh, I needed a job for the colonel's backstory, a military job that was during the war, the Cold War. And I happened to be on a writer's residency near San Francisco, and I visited the Nike Missile Historical Site. Yes, there is a national park about Nike missiles. Um, so I learned about all the placements of missiles during the Cold War and the difficult work of decommissioning missile sites. So that became part of the colonel's backstory, an essential part of his backstory. And then um, around this time, I had a personal obsession always with bird migration and with birds of paradise. And uh, I had witnessed, uh, around that time I was traveling, and I witnessed parrot colonies in Rome and Africa, um, excuse me, in Rome and California. So the colonel needed a hobby, so I gave him my hobby. <laughs> so let's see. for. Um, uh, as far as some of the other things, I was getting just a broad sense of my whole community. I worked at a river festival. I sold at a farmer's market. Um, my husband had garden journals that were documenting shifts in climate that farmers were noticing. Um, and to get more deeply into the Tuscarora uh, community, I read archaeology studies of in my area, and I read some resources on Tuscarora language. I took a pottery workshop to learn how to make pots in the Tuscarora style, and I went to a powwow to learn about native foods and and dances. So, um, uh, the really fun thing about parrot research is uh, I had a friend who knew a lot of people with parrots, and um, I had not been around parrots caged birds much. So she took me to a parrot cocktail party. That is sitting around with your parrots flying around and, you know, having a little wine. The parrots did not get wine, but they had little snacks, you know, there were little hors d'oeuvres for the parrots, little pieces of cheese and um, fruit and so on. And I went to um, a gas station where uh, there was a parrot in the office who would sing to you and it uh, would sing, let me call you sweetheart. I'm in love with you. So he liked the ladies, this parrot. And then I went to a rescue uh, place for tro tropical birds. And that was the day that I learned that birds feel deeply when they are abandoned. There was one bird that had been left there for a while and, um, it was plucking feathers out of its chest and making it was self wounding. And I realized that mm. there was, you know, just a terrible emotional trauma for a bird when it is abandoned. So, um, I kept doing research. I kept going back to the novel, but I quickly got into the weeds with plotting. I wanted the novel to be complex and layered, but I have not had not written a, a, a simple novel. I wanted to write a complex <laughs> novel. <laughs> I was so, yeah. you know, I was so sure I could do it, and I, I was determined to do it. So one of the qualities I think writers must have is uh, persistence. In my case, it, it's more like stubbornness. Um, 
I just kept coming back to it. So I wanted to have a big moral arc. And I looked at Joseph Campbell's books and videos, how the hero's journey works. I wanted each family to have a heroic theme, a, a transformation. Um, I studied uh, other novels to see how multiple characters were uh, were fit together. Um, I looked at Barbara Kingsolver's Prodigal Summer and uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved. And, you know, I, I think every writer does this. You study and study to try to figure out what your contribution, your way of doing it might be based on the traditions already established. So, um, I made a lot of charts. I made timelines. I found, uh, uh, I even made charts for metaphors. Um, my metaphors, I swear, they have story arcs. I have two tables in the novel. One, one, one is a rustic table made by the colonel's brother. The other is a big English antique oak dinner table, um, owned by the colonel's wife. And, these each have an opening condition, a backstory development, and a suitable fate. So I just had so fun with the kind of puzzle nature of the story. I I got impatient at one point with my progress and realized I had enough stories for a story collection if I included some of the material from the novel. So I... Uh, put that together and published a story collection, Accidental Birds of the Carolinas, about people moving south. Um, and then I went back to the novel one more time. I got about um, five years ago, I had a lot of feedback from writing groups and friends, and I learned how to cut, an important thing to know how to do, and I finally had a final to send out. Um, it was a little bit longer than a book is supposed to be in my genre, but uh, I I got kind of roundly um, rejected by agents, even though many agents had asked for the work. This was a time when uh, the the industry was moving more towards. Um, kind of a internet interface uh, and form filling out uh, for submissions. And so um, oftentimes people didn't get back to you, even if they had, uh, you know, invited you to submit if your book was a little long. So I went back to querying small publishers without benefit of an agent and my current publisher, the publisher already had only published short fiction. So I made a list of other other publishers and started to send out. And Indigo Field got picked up first first one on my list by Regal House, a woman owned publisher based in Raleigh. Uh, when the call came, I was so, so used to the the novel being rejected mm-hmm. um, that after she said she loved the book and wanted to offer a contract, I said, "Are you sure it isn't too long?" And and (laughs) I was like, Marjorie, just be quiet now. Um, But she said, I like that it's long. I like it just the way it is. So uh, we're friends for life. uh, And it was a long road. Yeah, it was a long road. But I'm very happy 
with this. What writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? Oh, just read and study tremendous amount. Um, read the books that you love. Find the books that you love. Find the books, the novels that are have something in common with what you're trying to do. Um, you know, my work is literary, so and it's kind of not not a uh, follow, it doesn't follow a pattern that has been um, codified in any way. So if you look at books that, if you're in working in that genre, if you look at books that have their own way of organizing things, you'll learn a tremendous amount and and be persistent. Um, uh, just just keep coming back and coming back. So that's that's the main advice. Um, I I also teach creative writing, and one of the things I tell my students is um, help each other find your people. Writing is something that happens alone, but developing a book and finishing with revisions, you need a village. So I I really um, recommend uh, connecting with other writers making a community, meeting with them, helping them out, um, you know, building your skill base um, by observing the writers in your group and um, connecting with people who, who really, really uh, connect with your work as well, um, because you need that encouragement. It's, uh, there's a terrific amount of rejection in this business, and you just need the encouragement. You need to have kind of people that, that will look at your work and say, yes. What novels have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, my goodness. I read recently Visible Signs, which is a novel by Grace Marcus. It's about uh, a young novice nun in the 70s who um, – gets very involved in feeding the poor and ends up leaving her leaving her uh, uh, her convent in order to work in community in order to marry. So it's kind of a sexy nun story. Um, I read The Beautiful Misfits by Susan Reinhart recently and um, her novel is, is really, it's fun, but it's also very serious. It goes into the, the, the difficulty of being a mother who is trying to find a way to help a son who's dealing with addiction. Um, and let's, let me give you one more. Loving the Dead and Gone. This is by a colleague at, at Regal House and her work is um, Judith Turner Yamamoto. Her work, it, it really explores grief. Um, two main characters, a young character and an older character, remembering the kind of grief that comes with the loss of a lover. And it's just a, kind of a, a, a spectacularly sexy uh scene or two about how we connect through memory um, and through kind of a, a you know embodiment uh, the the ghosts of the past of a past love can be embodied in a way 
Uh, so I, I really, really love love her exploration. It's beautiful work. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novel and your writing? Thank you. Yes, uh, it's easy to find me. It's just my name, MarjorieHudson.com. That's M-A-R-J-O-R-I-E-H-U-D-S-O-N.com. And all of the links to uh, Facebook. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, um, and Twitter. And all of those links are there. Um, all of my, uh, I also am on Goodreads. So it's really fun to review books. And I do a lot of reviewing on Goodreads. That's wonderful. Well, again, we've been speaking to Marjorie Hudson, author of the new novel, Indigo Field. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Marjorie, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks, Jeff. It was my pleasure. Absolutely. This is Marjorie Hudson reading from Indigo Field. Tucked between the Cedar River and the monstrous pines of the Gooley Ridge lies an ancient field. Tangled and wild, knee-high with last year's scrub, strewn with rocks the size of crouching men and sleeping deer. Its soil is deep and loamy. It has been planted, but never plowed. It is spring, and up on the ridge, a breeze lifts the broad crowns of the ghouly pines, releasing yellow clouds of pollen that float across the highway and come to rest on every flat surface of Stonehaven Downs Retirement Village, including the hood of Colonel Randolph Jefferson Lee's new Honda Accord. West of the ridge, across Phil Creek, the breeze raises wild bees from the hollow heart of Miss Reba's sycamore. The bees rise up from that dark cove of sweetness hover over three strange cedar statues in the yard, then head across the creek and through the woods. They pause over Jolene Blake's tidy fields, then glimmer up the Gooley Ridge and gather among the old pines humming. The Gooley Pines have lived through drought and flood. They know the glaze of ice and the glimmer of sun on their crut cupped bark each scale like a small ear, alert for sound. The giant trunks sense the movements of vast oceans. They taste the breeze and know a storm will rise along the coast of Africa. They listen to the stories of the field. Colonel Randolph Jefferson Lee, retired army, prepares for his daily run which he's lied about for months, telling Anne he will stay in the neighborhood, he will call her on the cell if he gets in trouble, and he will keep it down to a stroll, a slow walk, no running. Rand glances guiltily at Anne sitting at the kitchen table, her fluffy just-washed white blonde hair, her head tilted in that funny way of hers, peering through her fancy multicolor reading glasses, at the paper. The lovebirds chatter in their cage next to the window. Anne's deep into her morning routine. 
looking out the window now with pursed lips, something on her mind. He wonders sometimes if she thinks about Malaysia, their last posting, and all that happened there. But now she turns to the lovebirds in their cage, lifts the latch, and that mischievous grin, that morning joy, is back. God, she's a beauty. How did he ever catch a woman like her? By pretending to be a man who belonged in a place like this. He slurps coffee, steals another look. Is she snubbing him after their dust-up last night? She asks him to come with her today to some crazy spring gala where all the ladies are supposed to wear sundresses and the men are supposed to wear straw hats. Croquet is involved, she said, or cricket, she wasn't sure which, and vodka spiked lemonade, and it is all supposed to celebrate the first day of the Stonehaven Farmer's Market. What does farming have to do with croquet, he'd asked her. It's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Oh, don't be such a spoiled sport, she said. I think it'll be fun. The social program here seems modeled after a summer camp for Southern debutantes. Tea and crumpets, balls and juleps. My God, last April, when they were still new here, before he'd figured out their game, they'd bust the newcomers down to some coastal plantation for a party with hoop skirts and a Rhett Butler lookalike. Rand stood cringing in a corner, getting drunk as fast as possible. Anne ate it up, laughing, asking to see the elaborate pantaloons under those skirts, even dancing with the Rhett character, who was paunchy and fortyish up close, and from what Rand could tell, knew only one dance step. The man led Anne in an endless backward circle till they were both dizzy and had to sit down. Rand avoided dancing, but he remembers a ridiculous twinge of jealousy about that ret character spending so much time holding his wife. Anne seemed to be enjoying that a bit much.